Hello, I'm John Chambers, and I want to welcome you to the next session of Chambers Talks. Uh, these are discussions about tech disruption occurring across the industry and around the world, and how we bring that home to lessons learned from some of the great leaders, both in business and in government and in social change. Today, I'm talking with my very good friend, Steve Case. Steve and I have known each other for, we were adding up earlier, but it's about 27, 28 years or more. And uh, he's well known for so many areas, uh, both on success uh, in terms of his investments as a CEO, as giving back to society. Many of you will remember him uh, as the well-known co-founder of AOL. Today, he's the chairman and CEO of Revolution. It's an investment firm that really focuses on investments in three major categories, and it supports startup the life cycle, uh, backing companies primarily outside of Silicon Valley. Uh, the first group is Revolution Growth, which is growth stage capital. Second is Revolution Ventures, early stage capital. And the third is the Rise of the Rest Seed Fund. Uh, you're, you've been the founding chair of Startup America Partnership, the White House effort, uh, launched in 2011. Uh, you're the co-founding chair of the National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Uh, you've done policy reform advocacy with uh, President Obama and with many of the other presidents, with, with President Obama, Council on Jobs and Competitiveness. Bottom line is you've given back more than almost anybody in our industry. And, and Steve, you do it not just with your financial success, you do it with your time and your creativity and your ability to operationalize things so you get a 10 to 1 type of leverage out of it. Uh, you just wrote your second book and got it out, uh, uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit later today, The Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs in Surprising Places Are Building the New American Dream. Uh, you've uh, already been successful with your first book and the best-selling lifts. You were born and raised in Hawaii, and then you lived about 30 years in D.C., but mainly you're somebody that all of us remember is just a good person who really makes a difference. Uh, I think what you captured is the ability to really envision the American dream again and to do it in a way that can affect all of America, especially those that have been left behind. Today, it's largely four or five areas that have done startups. Your dream is to make it happen across the country and to balance the social implications that occur if we don't allow people to be inclusive uh, in their future. So thank you very, very much for joining us today. And Steve, I also want to thank you for your friendship and your ability to really make dreams happen. Oh, thanks, John. Great to be with you. And obviously, we've had a you know, journey together, even though I was focused on AOL, you're focused on Cisco. Both were kind of early pioneers and trying to stand up the internet and make it part of everyday life. And it's great that you continue to be fighting the good fight for entrepreneurs, not just in Silicon Valley, but all around the country, indeed, in different parts of the of the world. And so we do have sort of different stories, but they're on a similar trajectory of just trying to support entrepreneurship, drive innovation, and do it in a more, more inclusive way. And great to be with you on this podcast. Well, it's going to be fun. And, and again, our goal is to teach and to share both lessons learned that we did well, and perhaps lessons if we had a do-over, how we'd do them differently. But writing a book is really hard. And I want to start there because that's where you can teach the most. It's something that if it's done really well and yours are, is almost uh, insensitive to time. It basically teaches basic values, principles, approaches that go with it. So why did you write a second book? For The first one just about killed me uh, in connecting the dots. And to do it a second, I'm sure I'm not going to do. But tell me what, what you want to accomplish with the second one. And why did you decide to write a second one? 
Well, if you'd asked me a few years ago, I would have said similarly that I don't plan to write another book. It took me, you know, over 50 years to write a first book, uh, the third wave. I, I, I and I resisted a lot of uh, uh, suggestions. That I write a book about the early days of the internet or some of the, you know, the, you know, success of AOL or some of the challenges with the merge of AOL and Time Warner and so forth. But I wasn't that interested because I, I, I think like you, I'm much more focused on the future, not kind of reliving the past. And and so it took me a while to finally write that book, but I wrote it because I thought we were entering this third wave of the internet and I wanted to, you know, talk about the past in a way that might inform the future. But I thought I was done when that book came out, I think it was now six years ago, but led me to write this this new book uh, on the rise of the rest is after traveling around the country for much of the past decade and visiting hundreds of entrepreneurs, dozens of, of, of cities, it's just remarkable what's happening out there, but it's a story that's not really told. It's a story around, you know, not just building companies, but rebuilding communities and creating more hope and opportunity in parts of the country that have felt left out and left behind. So I just felt like I had to write this book. It, it wasn't even an option. I had to tell these stories that, and celebrate these entrepreneurs and encourage people who are working on building thriving startup communities all across the uh, the country. And I also thought it would be a, a hopeful book about the future of America. There are a lot of people that are quite concerned about things. Obviously, there are a lot of topics that that uh, and issues that are you know reason to be concerned. Uh, but uh, as we come up on our 250th anniversary of this country, which is you know started as a as a startup that almost hit the wall, didn't make it. Yes. Uh, you know, understanding the you know, what got us you know here and leaning into the future in terms of what will continue to, to propel the American story, I felt was very important and having a, an optimistic view of what might happen if we are more inclusive and more entrepreneurs in from different backgrounds, different places, bringing different perspectives, have an opportunity to start and scale companies and the process, you know, can create more jobs in, in more communities, more hope in more of these communities. I just felt it was a story that needed to be told, that, which led me to say, okay, I wasn't planning to write a second book, but uh, here we go. Well, you know, what's amazing, Steve, is, is we share similar dreams, uh, but people have to have a vision of what's possible. And they have to see ways they can get there and have to realize there are going to be challenges and setbacks along the way. Can you take us down to the next level in terms of how you approach this? Because you think big picture, you think on multiple axes at the same point in time. You think about how business and government can work together. Uh, how do you help level that playing field in a way that the listener today really grasps? Because the further I get into it and the more I watch what you're doing, you're doing so many things that actually line up toward a common goal. And that's how you, I believe you achieve results that others do not. They just try to accomplish a goal in a very narrow vertical type of concept. Uh, take us the next step, if you will, in unpacking that. Well, I, I should say that I sort of stumbled into this work about a decade ago. It was not something I was I was really uh, paying attention to, frankly. Uh, I, as an entrepreneur, certainly knew the importance of venture capital in terms of being able to really propel some ideas forward and, and build some pretty significant kind of disruptive you know, companies because I kind of lived that story myself. Uh, but I didn't realize that, that how difficult it was for certain people in certain places to raise venture capital. You know, uh, you know Silicon Valley continues to dominate. There are a lot of good reasons why it is so strong as, a, as an ecosystem. Uh, but over the last decade, 75% of venture capital has gone to just three states, 
California, New York, and Massachusetts. So if you're in one of the other 47 states, which is where most of the people in America are, uh, it's much more you know kind of difficult. And so figuring out ways to, to address that, it was important. And, and it started with the work of this National Advisory Council of Innovation Entrepreneurship a decade ago. That led, as you mentioned earlier, to the Startup America effort uh, at, the, at, the, at the White House. And I just started seeing the, you know, that there both a problem that needed to be solved, but also an opportunity that needed to be seized by trying to figure out ways to, to get more capital, more people in more places, create more of that uh, sense of possibility that is so great about Silicon Valley and different parts of the country so they would celebrate entrepreneurs and recognize that, of course, startups are risky, but doing nothing is riskier still. Uh, so that really got me on this on this path. And as I reflect on it, particularly in the process of writing this, this second book on Rise of the Rest, I realized that most of my life has been much as much like yours, focused on building networks. It was how do you build networks in the early days of, of the internet with, with, with companies like AOL, but also now how do you build networks in each of these communities and then build a network across these different rising cities? So, so far we've done our Rise of the Rest bus tours in, in 45 cities. Uh, we've made investments now in 100 different, uh, different uh, cities. And each city we recognize is somewhat different and we need to learn what's going on there, uh, figure out ways to drive more collaboration within the community, connect somebody at the big company with somebody at the university, with somebody maybe at the mayor's office, with, 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 the, with, the, with the startup. So there's a lot around driving uh, connectivity and collaboration, basically building, uh, building uh, networks. And as you mentioned before, we also recognize there's an important uh, component here of engaging on the policy you know, side, whether it be at a local level, uh, or maybe there's things around angel investment tax credits that can help fuel more capital, or a national level, including some of the legislation that just passed in the last uh, a few months that includes funding of, of, of regional hubs. There's a connection between what happens at the on the government side and also what happens at the at the at the on the entrepreneurial side. So trying to build more of those bridges. Uh, we think is is an important aspect uh, as well. Uh, but you know, it's really been fun for the last decade spending you know most of my time traveling around the country and seeing what's happening kind of on the ground and and it, it's it's really quite uh, encouraging. Uh, and I think as other people understand what's happening, I think there will be reasons to be more hopeful. And I'm hoping that more people in growing up in places like West Virginia, uh, in the future, we'll see opportunities to stay there and, and build companies there, as opposed to feeling like they have to, to leave to go to someplace else because there isn't any venture capital. There isn't a culture around uh, you know, risk taking. There isn't a lot of collaboration and connectivity. Uh, and if people choose to go to the coast and choose to go to a place like Silicon Valley, that's great. But a lot of people didn't really have the choice. If they wanted to be part of the innovation economy, they had to go leave home. They had to, you know, go someplace else. And you know, my hope in the next couple of decades is that changes. We see a slowing of the brain drain of people leaving and a boomerang of of people returning, uh, including our mutual friend, you know, Brad Smith in West Virginia, having a you know storied business career and and then uh, saying, I want to go back home and I want to lead a university that can not just, you know, kind of you know you know teach you know, uh, you know people, but also inspire people. Uh, and, and have a broader impact in, in the in the community. That if we can do that in every part of this country, uh, those communities will rise, and this country will continue to be the leader of the pack in terms of innovation and entrepreneurship. You know what's fascinating is 
when you started doing this over 10 years ago and I started doing it aggressively a little bit over five years ago, uh, people thought it was a dream way too far. Uh, it, it it wouldn't happen. And yet you look at the progress and you mentioned it with the bus tours, et cetera. I'll come back to that in just a second. But just with West Virginia, where you know, we, we used to be on top of the world as a chemical center and a coal mining center, and then we lost it. And we'd forgotten how to dream. But once people had a chance to dream, we brought together the politicians from the Democratic side, the Republican side. We brought together a vision. The universities tied in. And we went for a goal that most everybody thought was too far. Uh, and actually, we've overachieved it in the first five years. I've learned telling the war stories are what people remember. You just gave about eight or nine really great facts in, in the discussion. But for the viewers, they'll remember the stories that you tell. Share with us the bus tour. How did it come about? How do you use that? Because you bring attention to the success, you bring emotion, you give people hope, and you share the story. Could you kind of enlighten our, our viewership a little bit on how that works? Well, we did our first uh, bus tour about uh, eight years ago now, and we thought we should you know hit the hit the road and see what was happening in different places. So some of our first stops included Detroit, which 100 years ago in some ways was Silicon Valley. It was the innovation capital when the car was the hot technology of the day. And people were rushing to be part of that Detroit phenomenon, part of that car phenomenon. Uh, and it was a magnet for talent, magnet for, for capital. And it was going gangbusters. Uh, but then, you know, kind of lost some of that entrepreneurial mojo, global competition, intensified the automobile business. And Detroit sort of lost its way. And in the last... Uh, half uh, century lost 60% of its population and then wow. went bankrupt. The year before we arrived, the, the city had gone bankrupt. And this was kind of Silicon Valley 100 years ago. So it was an interesting story of the rise of the city and then the fall of the city, but then the rise again. And what's happened over the last decade in, in Detroit is really phenomenal. Dan Gilbert, the founder of Quicken Loans, has been a big driver, a very strong mayor focused on, on uh, startups. So a lot of things have happened that have catalyzed this next uh, wave of innovation and opportunity and job creation in Detroit. Our next stop was Pittsburgh which powered the Industrial Revolution. Again, a century ago, it was one of the most important you know, cities because it was the, the steel capital of the of the country, really the, the, the world. And it has some a great university like Carnegie Mellon there to, to build on and a lot of investment 30, 40, 50 years ago in robotics uh, technology. Then we went to you know, Cincinnati, a classic heartland you know, city where there are a lot of big companies like Procter & Gamble and Kroger and, and others, but there weren't a lot of small companies. Uh, and and you know, we started to see the dynamics kicking in of, of not having enough investments in, in young companies. And then a lot of those big companies got together, launched an effort, including a venture fund to back companies there. And we've seen an acceleration uh, there. And we went to Nashville. So this is just the first tour we did. As I said, we've now done eight tours over, over you know, well over 40 different different cities. And it was an attempt just to see firsthand what was happening in each of these cities. And, and you know, we tell a lot of those stories in, in this book because we we talk about, I think it's 30 different cities that we profile in terms of what they're they're doing and you know, you know, what some of the lessons have learned that are helpful to other cities and helpful to entrepreneurs who want to uh, build different uh, you know different companies. Uh, and so it's, it was kind of hit the hit the road, see America, see what's happening in the in the entrepreneurial world. The surprise was most people thought when we first started talking about Rise of the Rest that maybe there are you know a few other cities, two, three, four other cities that might rise up like San Francisco did or New York did or Boston did as as innovation hubs. 
We're seeing this happening in dozens of cities. It's a much more broad-based phenomenon than most people are realized, which again is a reason to, to I wrote the book. But the last point I make is it goes back to our earlier conversation. In terms of part of what inspired the, the first Rise of the Rest bus tour uh, was we had done a similar effort in the early days of the internet. When we got started with AOL in 1985, only, as you know, only 3% of people were online at the time. And those 3% were online an average of one hour a week, a week. Yes. So we wanted to get the world online. We wanted to evangelize the benefits of getting online. And we hit the road and you know, went to different cities and hosted events, really just to expose people to what the internet was all about, obviously, you know, in an effort to promote AOL. And we saw by doing that in a, in a, in a, you know, kind of a personal way, hitting the ground, meeting people in in their communities. We were able to educate people, and that fueled some of the the growth of of AOL. So, in some ways, uh, things I've been doing for for the last few decades are pretty similar. I talked about you know the the network dynamic of the early days of the internet. More recently, building a network across these rise of the rest cities. The bus tour simile is is it was not a new idea. It was building on something we had done in those in those early days. But it's been very helpful to to be on the ground and to see what's happening and to frankly use the bus not just as a a little bit of an iconic symbol of America, but also as a platform to bring people together. You know, as we drive around town in each of these cities, we've connected people in those cities that otherwise weren't connected. And that's been helpful in terms of driving this next wave of, of uh, startup creation and, and job creation in, in these different communities. So I'm going to switch directions a little bit. We've talked about vision, what's possible, the American dream, bringing it back, inclusiveness, et cetera, both geographic, gender, religion, color of our skin, et cetera. Uh, in today's world, the majority of the leaders have never witnessed a slowdown. It's been 13 years, Steve, since the last one. And we forget 20-some years since the 2001 .com bust, which was extremely painful for many of us. Uh but uh, there's a lot being written about the money driving up, the end of free money, the VCs aren't investing, uh, et cetera. And it's going to get really hard to raise money and keep these startups going. Candidly, as we discussed briefly earlier, I'm not seeing that. It might be a little bit harder to raise money, but it's still available even in Europe, which was slow to take off on the startup community. Out of the rounds done the first half of the year, only 15% were even down. And some of those companies canly got way overvalued in, in ways that that uh, in hindsight, you wonder, what were we thinking? Uh, what are you seeing in the market and what advice would you give for entrepreneurs thinking whether they're doing seed or series A or growth funds? Uh, what are you seeing in the market and what advice would you give them? Well, I think it's similar to what you're saying. I would say there is a difference and has been a difference for a number of years in terms of what happens in, in places with robust startup ecosystem and significant investment capital like a Silicon Valley and what happens in different parts of the country. Uh, it has been more difficult if you're an entrepreneur in most cities in this country to raise venture capital. Many cities in, in, in this country uh, for most of the last several decades have had no venture capital available locally. Uh, that's changed in the last decade. We did a, a joint uh, project uh, called Beyond Silicon Valley in partnership with PitchBook uh, late last year. Uh, and the, the data there was, I think, encouraging that there was 1,400 new regional venture firms that have been launched in different cities all around the country 
particularly at that early stage, and that's resulting in more capital flowing to more of those uh, those companies. But it had been historically more difficult. Valuations have been historically lower, particularly in the early stage when companies go public. You know, nobody says, "Oh, you're in Pittsburgh, or you're in Detroit, or you're in Ann Arbor, or you're in Columbus." So it should be a lower valuation than if you were in San Francisco or or New York. But that does happen at the early stage in terms of a uh, you know, classic supply demand. Most of the venture capital investors historically have invested in Silicon Valley because that's where they lived and that's where they had strong networks, and it was harder uh, to get many of them to to consider investing in other other places. As a result, the valuations in those other places tended to be low at that earlier stage. So there's frankly been less of a correction this year in these rising cities than there has been in some of the you know the bigger cities. Uh, but I agree with your overall thesis, which is there is still a lot of venture capital out there, a lot of what we call dry powder out there. You know, some firms have you know taken a little bit of a pause, slowed down a little bit in terms of considering new investments in part to focus on on their existing uh, investments. But great entrepreneurs building you know great companies are always going to be able to access venture capital. Uh, we're just trying to make sure that as we've discussed that we level the playing field so they can do that anywhere in the country, not just be in a, in, a, in a few different uh, different different places. So as you said, it was a 13 year you know bull market. Not surprising uh, that there was been a pause. Not surprised that you know, as Fed, the Fed made some changes around interest rates and, and trying to rein in inflation. That that would result in a reset in public valuations. And when public valuations are reset, private valuations are reset because obviously venture capitalists, you know, are, are as part of their analysis are trying to figure out if this company is successful, what might it be worth as a public company down the road. So if the multiples compress for the public market, the multiples will compress for the, the the private markets and we've seen some of that uh uh this year but but the positive from my standpoint is and even watching our, our rise of the rest portfolio where we've now made uh, investments in 200 companies in 100 different cities you know, wow. you know the valuations actually have been held up pretty well this this year we haven't seen the the steep declines that we've seen in some some companies in some places you know it's fascinating uh i think it's over 25 years ago when you and John Doerr, uh, Jim Barksdale, myself, we formed TechNet, and we did it for a simple reason. Many of us had the view that the further you kept government away, the better. And uh, if we went to Washington at all, we did a flyby. I uh, said hello to them, told them they were doing things wrong and then left, which is the worst of all world. And we realized that if tech didn't work very closely with government, bad things happen on both sides. Uh, it was a great progress along that line. How have you taken it the next step when you're working with the city uh, governments, with the state governments, and maybe for the listeners, a little bit kind of the rules of the road about what works and what doesn't when you try to partner with government? Well, first of all, I applaud your you know, pioneering efforts to get TechNet launched 25 years ago. At the time, as you said, the general view among the entrepreneurial community was you know, ignore government uh, because it will just, you know, slow things down or screw things up. And obviously there is some part of that that, that is a real risk. Uh, but yeah, I realized early on when we were getting started with AOL and the internet that government mattered. Frankly, when we started in 1985, and you'll remember this, but most of the listeners probably won't, it was still illegal in 1985 for consumers or businesses to be on the internet. Because at the time, it you know, was restricted to government agencies and educational institutions. So it required a change in law, con congressional law, the Telecom Act, 
uh, that basically opened up the internet, commercialized the internet, and allowed the internet to to flourish. The government in that case funded the initial technology with through DARPA uh, of of the internet. For a while, it was limited in terms of who could use it, uh, and then the government decided to open it up. We also saw in those early early days of the internet, the the government trying to figure out what to do around tax policy for things like uh, e-commerce, and you know, government trying to figure out how to win the global battle for for talent, things like uh, immigration. So I lived that in the '80s and '90s uh, when I was running a. AOL seeing you know the the positive that the governments can do as opposed to just viewing it as a negative. More recently, at my investment firm uh, Revolution, obviously focused a lot on place like Rise of the Rest, backing uh, com- companies in different parts of the uh, the country. We're also very focused on policy. We believe most of the industries that are really going to matter in the future, the biggest investment opportunities because of the biggest entrepreneurial opportunities are going to be in in industries that have some regulatory component to it things like healthcare and food and agriculture and financial services and 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 so forth there's a there's a regulatory policy aspect to it and it's not just a problem to deal with it's also an opportunity to see because sometimes if if these policies are changed it can open up opportunities and we've seen that in a number of different uh, different sectors so uh, having lived it in these early days of the internet and even more recently with some of the companies we've backed at revolution seeing an acceleration in their growth because of decisions governments make uh it just it made it very clear to me that it needed to be a front and center issue and not something for either entrepreneurs or investors to 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 kind of put on the on the you know on the back burner uh, some of the recent legislation that's passed uh, it's accelerated the investment in regional hubs. I, I talked about that earlier. I think that'll be helpful. A lot of the legislation around sectors such as climate will result in an acceleration of of investment in that in that area. That creates an opportunity. But you have to, as an entrepreneur, recognize that it's not just the technology you you create. It's that's sort of most the table stakes to be in the game. It's it's how you navigate different policies. How do you establish partnerships with you know, with key customers? All the kinds of things you did at the, at the, when you're running Cisco. Uh, yeah, that's going to be more and more the you know, the, the 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 key success formula for innovation entrepreneurship in in the future. Last point in terms of the you know your question at the local level is educating governors and mayors that economic development isn't and shouldn't be about getting big companies to open an office or big companies to move their headquarters or big companies to open a factory. That's part of it. But for most of the past few decades, that's been far too much the focus. It's how you grit, you know, help create an environment to allow new companies to start and new companies to scale, because most of the job creation in this country does not come from small business or big business, but new business. And that has started to shift in, in many parts of the, the country. And, and, and many governors, many mayors now are celebrating, championing the role of startups and, and entrepreneurs and trying to attract more people to their to their cities or to their, their states to, and position them as a, like a startup state and an and ecosystem around particular sectors of the the economy. I think that bodes well for 
for the future, just figuring out ways to make sure not just as a country, but as in different communities all around the country, uh, everybody's doing what they can to support the next generation of entrepreneurs, disrupting some of these you know, sectors that are critically important aspects of our lives and also happen to be very big, you know, big industries. Uh, I think people are going to see the the role of government, the role of policy is much more important uh, in the in the next 10 or 20 years than it has been in the last you know, 10 or 20 years. And some of that uh, goes back to the, the, what we talked about earlier in terms of these waves of the the internet. I talked about how when we got started, it was still illegal for consumers or businesses to connect to the internet, and the governments had to intervene. That whole first wave of the internet, the first 20 years or so, government did play an important role. The last 20 years, less of a role because it shifted from building the internet, building the infrastructure, the on-ramps, to building on top of the internet, building software and apps on top of the internet. And that's where this big success stories like Facebook and Snap and Twitter that were kind of viral apps uh, that then were, then were you know smartly monetized were became some of the you know the dominant you know companies. In this in this next wave. Uh, where sort of the internet meets the real world and disrupts some of these big industries, the technology will increasingly be the, the the table stakes. What you do around that is really where the real value creation is going to come. And that will advantage some of these rise of the rest cities where they have a particular expertise in, in a sector, whether it be healthcare or trucking and logistics or what have you. And they can build on that uh, if they have a strong entrepreneurial ecosystem. You know, you hit several topics. I'm not exactly sure where to go next, but I'm going to take a crack at it. Uh, we tend to think of job creation traditionally from the large companies and attract them, as you said. But I agree with you, Steve. I don't think large companies in total in the U.S. or around the world, but especially in the U.S., will add incremental jobs over the next one to two decades. I think almost all growth will come out of small to medium business, the 400,000 plus jobs we need every month to make that happen. But we've also seen a trend even for the small companies, and I'll use Silicon Valley, New York, and Massachusetts, where you said rightly so, 75% of the, the companies were located. Most of those companies are now growing dramatically in other parts of the U.S. faster than those cities. So the future of remote work, and for all the terrible things that happened because of COVID, it taught us how to work remotely. It taught us how to locate where you want a lifestyle and yet to be as productive or even more productive. I actually think that may be for many of the areas that you talked about, every bit as productive in terms of job creation uh, as the startups that they do. Am I all wet on that? Or do you share a similar view? And take I think, as you said, the, the pandemic has, has been terrible in many, many respects. But one of the positive sort of silver linings uh, has been how it's unbundled work and life and even, you know, giving you more flexibility in terms of how you work and where you live and, and so forth, which has accelerated uh, the whole remote work, uh, you know, kind of uh, dynamic. And and a number of people uh, had decided in the early days of the pandemic to move someplace else. Maybe they wanted to go back home to be with family. Maybe they wanted to go to some other, other place. And they thought it might just be for a few weeks or maybe a few months. Uh, now, many of those people have decided to move there permanently. And most of them continue to work for their existing company based someplace else. But what we're starting to see is once people are in these other communities in Indianapolis or Columbus or Nashville or Detroit or some of the cities that we've, we've been investing in, they start seeing things because they are there that they didn't realize were happening when they were someplace else. And that leads them to start thinking about maybe I leave that big company who I'm working for remotely and join 
a smaller company or maybe start their own company in those communities. So I think this pandemic is sort of the shake the snow globe moment uh, for society, in particular for innovation entrepreneurship. Uh, and it's you know exactly how it all plays out is still a little early to say, but having more flexibility in terms of where you live likely will accelerate these rising startup communities in far more places around the you know the country. I think hopefully 10, 20 years from now, we can look back and say it was a tipping point that really led to these cities that were on the trajectory of rising, seeing a real acceleration in terms of what was possible as more people who had left earlier did decide to return and more companies started and 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 scaled in these different communities, not just a few places on the on on the coast. So I, I'm very optimistic about some of the early data we're seeing and and some of even some of these entrepreneurial stories of of company. I remember one in particular back then in Arkansas. Uh, started actually in San Francisco, but decided to move the company to Arkansas because in their case, there is a company called Acre Trader that's a platform for basically a lot of people to invest in farmland. And he said, well, if I'm going to be successful here, I have to build trust with farmers. And it's hard to do that if I'm in some office building in in in, in San Francisco. And uh, by being in Arkansas, he had more you know credibility. And that company has scaled you know quite you know quite significantly. We've seen more and more of those stories where they might have been someplace else, decide strategically there's a reason to be in some other part of the country. And the pandemic has been this accelerant in terms of more people rethinking, you know, kind of how they should start and scale the companies and also rethinking how they want to live their lives. You know, one of the areas that I enjoy next, and it'll be the last category of topics we cover, Steve, if it's all right, is uh, lessons in leadership. And, and it's so important to be able to tell the war stories and and share views and uh, it's equally important to share the mistakes made in terms of direction. Maybe let me ask it in several questions, if I may. Uh, is there one category or one lesson learned that you wish you had learned 20 years earlier than you did? And what would it be and why? Well, it's, a, it's sort of an obvious one, but I, I keep relearning the same thing, which is it really all does come down to people. You know, that having the right you know, vision is important, having, you know, the, 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 but you have to execute against that vision. And there's a wonderful Thomas Edison quote, vision without execution is hallucination. So having a sense of what's going to happen and, and having a perspective on, you know, what you want to build and so forth is great. So it's, it's an important, you know, starting point, but ultimately it comes down to execution. That just comes down to people. So having the right people on your team focused on the right, you know, kind of uh, priorities is 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 you know kind of job one, two, and three of a of a of a of a CEO. And so that I've I've kind of consistently kind of learned that and keep keep learning that ultimately it comes down to the people and and particularly if you're growing a company rapidly. In the case of AOL, we started with you know a couple dozen people, and then a decade later it was a couple hundred people, and a decade later it was. 10,000 people. And then we merged with Time Warner was 90,000 people. Uh, ultimately, it comes down to people and how you, you know, mobilize those people and, and focus those people so they can you know, execute. So I think that the, the people aspect is, is uh, and just focusing on the execution aspects are, are, uh, are front and center. A second is about the importance of partnerships. I saw that in the early days of AOL, you know, we started with a little bit of venture capital. Our first round of venture capital was $1 million. Um, by comparison, there was a joint venture at the time, you'll remember, but probably most won't, called Prodigy, backed by IBM and Sears, and for a little while, CBS, and they committed $1 billion to launch Prodigy. So our $1 million 
was standing up to their $1 billion didn't seem like, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have much of a shot. We also at the time were competing against some really big companies like AT&T and, and a little bit later Microsoft and, and, and others. Uh, so we said, we can't do this alone. We need to figure out ways to partner. Uh, and we established partnerships with a lot of folks to, that really allowed AOL to, to scale and, 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 and flourish. So I think the, the partnership aspect is critically uh, important. So those are two of them, focusing on people and focusing on partnerships, making sure you are constantly rethinking the team you need, not just for now, but for where you're going, and are constantly reimagining what partnerships might allow you to accelerate your, your growth and capture more, uh, more market share. You know, when I think about investing in companies or people, uh, we tend to think about, are we more a product of our successes or our setbacks? And when I look at investing in a startup or investing in mentoring someone, I'm as much interested in mistakes they made and lessons learned. Can you share a little bit, do you think you're more a product of your successes or your failures? And what lessons learned are you most proud of in your career? And if you had a do-over, what would be the do-over? I'd say it's in, in terms of your questions, a mix. I think uh, I certainly uh, benefited from some of the successes. I was able to, you know, kind of have a visibility and, and you know, some some credibility and uh, some capital that allowed me to have a an impact in in other areas. But certainly the the struggles, the disappointments, the the mistakes, the failures also helped both inform, you know, what I wanted to do in the future and maybe even drive me to do some, you know, some things that could have broad, broad impact. So I think it's, it's a mix for me. I think it's a mix for, you know, for, for most people, you want to kind of build on your successes, but also learn from, from uh, some of your mistakes. Uh, I made a lot of mistakes in the early days of, of AOL as we, as I was in, in my twenties at the time and still trying to kind of figure things out. Uh, and and ultimately, it came down to you know, focusing more on you know what to making sure you have the right team and you're setting the right priorities and you're establishing the right you know the partnerships. Uh, but it was a never ending you know kind of battle. I, was, I never woke up and said, uh, you know, this is this is working perfectly well. It's like a fine Swiss watch. There always was needs to you know to to tweak it. And we had disappointments. I remember camping out actually in San Francisco for the better part of a year. This was in the late '80s with the goal of establishing a partnership with Apple. We were successful in getting that deal. Finally, we launched a service called Apple Inc. Personal Edition that we were basically powering, leveraging the Apple brand name. And not too long after we launched it, Apple wanted to pull the plug. They decided we we didn't want to. We wish we hadn't licensed our brand name. And that was a near-death experience for the for the company, but forced us to take a step back, actually forced us to, couldn't use the Apple Inc. Any, name anymore, that forced us to rename it, and that became America Online, which over time became uh, AOL. So that was another lesson that what looked like a crisis turned into an opportunity. Uh, and so, you know, these, you know, you constantly are learning these different, different lessons in terms of what's worked and what's not worked on the merger with AOL and Time Warner. I think we were right strategically. This is over 20 years ago. We announced the merger in, in 2000, so 22 years ago. And a lot of things that have happened since with, with the uh, streaming services, digital music and so forth were, were right on. And the idea of taking the leading internet company, emerging with the leading media company that also happened to have the largest cable footprint and therefore leading broadband company uh, on paper was the perfect merger. But the execution of that was flawed because we didn't get the people aspect right. And instead of driving synergies across the different businesses, there's all kinds of, of, uh, of battles between different parts. So again, it goes back to that, what I said at the very beginning, 
uh, it all comes down to, you know, get people and making sure you have the right people focused on the right things, working together in the right ways. If that's, you've got that right, anything is possible. You don't have that right. I'd argue very little is possible. You know, that's a great one to end on, Steve. Uh, any last thoughts for the audience or areas I should have probed into that I missed the window of opportunity to, to share your experiences with the viewership? No, I think we I think we covered you know most of the ground. I think it's been a you know, we've both been uh, had the opportunity to have a interesting kind of journey. Uh, me starting in Hawaii, you starting in West Virginia, having some success in those early days of of trying to kind of power the you know the the, the technology revolution. It's been amazing to watch what you've been continuing to do, not just in this country but in different parts of the you know the world, really inspiring the next generation of innovators and, and entrepreneurs. And I love the fact that we're sort of united in trying to figure out how to level the playing field so that it is, you know, the, the opportunity to create and build uh, is, is available to more people. The opportunity for cities to rise and have, you know, kind of job creation, economic uh, growth is available to you know, more people. I'm encouraged by some of the things that we've been seeing over the last decade. And, and the whole reason, obviously, to write the, the book on the rise of rest is to tell those stories, try to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs and try to provide some some lessons for for the but not just the companies but also the the cities and city and community leaders who can hopefully kind of redouble their efforts as we move into this is this next uh, phase so it's been a, a wonderful journey the journey continues I look forward to working with you and in, in West Virginia other parts of the country to really back those next generation of uh, entrepreneurs who are going to create the the next AOLs and next Cisco's in places that might surprise people I completely agree. I want to thank you. For those who are listening, you understand why I admire Steve so much. And I, I don't give compliments. I don't mean he's he's changed an industry. He's changed an attitude. and He's changing America in a very positive way. And yet he's very transparent on lessons learned. So, Steve, thank you for your time today. It means the world to me. And uh, I'd like to encourage the people who've listened. Thank you for joining us on Chambers Talks. But please take time to do the evaluations. And I look forward to our next session, uh, listening to you and learning from great leaders around the world. Have a great day and be safe.